Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Dawn Song. Dawn is a professor of computer science at UC Berkeley and CEO and founder at Oasis Labs. Dawn, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to digging into our conversation. We will be talking quite a bit about responsible data and what that means. Uh, but before we do, let's start off with a little bit of background. Um, you know, what got you started in working in AI? Oh, um, I mean, AI and trying to figure out how, uh, how to build intelligent machines. Um, I think it's really probably the ultimate goal. If we can build intelligent machines, there are so many problems that we can we can solve and and so on. So it's uh, I, I think just a really really exciting and uh, is and I would say probably one of the most important pursuits. Um, yes, and uh, and actually, so my undergraduate was uh, was in physics, and I uh, switched to computer science in my graduate school. And uh, and in my graduate school, and also later on as a professor, I uh, spent a lot of time actually focusing in security and privacy, uh, figuring out how to build secure systems and, and so on. Uh, but at the same time, I've always been really interested in building intelligent machines. Um, so uh, yes, I'm really glad that I uh, I've had the opportunity and uh, and the experience to. I really try to see how we can make progress in that space. Awesome, awesome. And you're currently working on a startup now, Oasis Labs. Uh, how long have you been working on that? Uh, Oasis Labs is about two years now. Okay. <laughs> and you're on leave uh, from Berkeley as you work on the, that project? Uh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about the the genesis of Oasis Lab and the, the labs and the, the problem that you're looking to solve there. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, so at Oasis Labs, we uh, focus on building what we call a platform for a responsible data economy. So uh, as we know, internet has really you know changed everybody's lives and mostly for the better. But uh, at the same time we do see many uh, challenges. In particular, uh, as we know, data is uh, critical. It's a key driver for modern economy, but a lot of this data is also really sensitive. And handling the sensitive data poses many challenges for the, uh, on the user side as well as on the business side. So for the user side, users are losing control of their data. They don't really know. Uh, what their data has been used for, how their data has been used, and so on. And also, they are not getting direct, sufficient uh, direct benefits from their data. And on the business side, businesses continue to suffer from large-scale uh, data breaches, and also it's becoming more and more expensive and cumbersome for them to comply with, the, for example, privacy regulations like a GDPR and CCPA. And more importantly, it's still... Uh, really difficult for business to utilize data due to data silos and privacy concerns and so on. So the hope is that we can build uh, a new uh, platform for a responsible data economy that helps address many of these challenges, that helps users to better maintain control of their data and rights to data, and also help businesses to better utilize data, but in a privacy-preserving and responsible way. Uh, essentially to enable a new paradigm uh, to uh, to address many of the challenges that I mentioned. We've talked to quite a bit on the podcast uh, over the, the past few years about uh, differential privacy and uh, related techniques. Is that a, a core piece of, you know, this this vision of a responsible data platform? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, in order to enable something like uh, what I just mentioned, this responsible data and responsible data economy, essentially uh, it needs to address a number of different uh, questions, different types of questions. And uh, so first of all, we need to ensure that users 
rights to data is properly maintained, is well logged, uh, and so on. Uh, so, so for that, we actually utilize blockchain to maintain an immutable ledger for users' rights to data and also the log of how the data has been utilized. And then also we need to ensure that when the data is used, it's uh, used in a way that uh, we call it a controlled use that actually uh, satisfies users' privacy requirements and their policies of how their data uh, should be used. So for that, essentially, we need to address at least two separate types of questions. One is typically today, for example, when you talk about data markets, uh, the buyer usually buys a copy of the data and they essentially get a raw copy of the data. And once they buy uh, or get raw access to the data, then essentially they can do anything they want with the data. They can mm-hmm. you know, go ahead and resell the data. They can use the data for other purposes that may not be for the best interests of the data owner and so on. So that's also one of the big challenges today uh, for data use. Um, so in contrast, ideally for responsible data use, what we uh, need to enable is what we call controlled use. So in this case, for example, the buyer of the data, they don't just buy the data itself. What they buy is the use of the data. And, and to enable this, essentially, they don't get, they shouldn't get a copy or a, a raw access to the data itself. So what we uh, enable in this platform, in this controlled use, is uh, enable the buyer or the user of the data to actually um, use the data in a confined environment. You can almost think of it as a black box. So the data will only be computed over in this black box uh, so that the data itself doesn't leak out and then the buyer or the user of the data doesn't actually ever get raw access to the data, doesn't get a direct copy of the data. They can only use the data in this black box uh, confined environment. So that's number one, we call that secure computing. And there are a number of techniques that you can uh, use to enable this uh, secure com- uh, computing to essentially, uh, you can view it as a way of computing over encrypted data. So basically, uh, right, so you can use cryptography-based approaches such as uh, homomorphic encryption or multi-party uh, computation uh, and so on. Um, or you can use secure hardware, uh, which also essentially provides this type of black box a based uh, black box-like confined execution environment so mm-hmm. that the data can only be used inside this black box environment. Okay. In a right. lot of ways, it sounds like uh, there's a much lower tech analogy here in um, like old school direct marketing. You have these list aggregators that would collect people's mailing addresses and they don't want to give the catalog you know, vendors uh, access to the their mailing addresses because then why would they need to license them again? So instead, or the catalog vendors would send them the the things that they want to send out. And you, I think the same thing happens in email as well, right? So, you know, the, the list company won't give someone the, the list. They'll say, we'll send your email for you. In a lot of ways, you're saying, we, we're not going to give you the data, but we'll do your compute for you. And now you need to come up with interesting ways to allow people to actually do the compute on these this personal data without giving them access to it. And that's yeah, that, that's an interesting analogy. So of course, computing over data is much more complicated than uh, sending out emails or uh, to an email sure. address and so on. Right. So so that requires an entirely new type of technology to enable this secure computing so that you can only compute on the data, you cannot actually get raw access to the data. So that's one part. And the other part is then you want to ensure that the computation itself uh, on the data also complies with the user's uh, policies of how their data should be utilized. For example, you want to ensure that when uh, someone uses the data to train a machine learning model, then, and then in the end, the machine learning model 
is being you know used for for queries for inference and so on. You want to ensure that the machine learning model itself doesn't leak individual uh, usage information. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you mentioned about differential privacy earlier. So differential privacy is one example technology that can help address uh, this problem. So uh, speaking of which, you know, like the privacy challenges for uh, training uh, machine learning models, uh, I can give you one example. Uh, this is uh, a recent work that we did in collaboration with the researchers from Google and so on. And the question here uh, we are trying to explore is the following. As we know that neural networks has very high capacity and uh, they can, so the question is, whether when you train a machine learning model, it actually remembers a lot about the original training data. And if it does, can an attacker actually exploit uh, this issue and uh, try to actually learn uh, sensitive information about the original training data, in this case, even just through querying the machine learning mm-hmm. model without even getting a copy of, for example, the parameters and so on of the model. Right. If I remember correctly, there have been papers where uh, they were able to demonstrate that you can reconstruct images that were uh, part of a training set of the uh, machine learning model. So that's one example. And uh, the, the example work that we did is in the, in the language model setting. So we showed okay. that if you train uh, a language model, for example, using an email uh, data sets. In our case, it's called the Enron email data sets. The Enron email data sets naturally contains uh, users' uh, social security numbers and credit card numbers. And okay. we show that when you train a language model on this email data sets, an attacker, by devising new attacks and just by querying uh, this language model without even knowing the details of the model, such as the parameters of the model, the attacker actually is able to recover the original user's credit card and social security numbers that were embedded in the uh, in the original data sets. Mm-hmm. So this is another example showing that as we train machine learning models, it's really important to pay attention to privacy protection to users' data. Mm-hmm. And in this case, actually, we show that... For this particular case, we actually can have a fairly good solution to the problem. And the solution is that instead of training a vanilla language model, if we train a differentially private language model, then in this case, we can still have pretty good utility, uh, but we, and at the same time, we can significantly enhance the privacy protection uh, of the user's data of the, uh, in this um, uh, language model. So, okay. right. So, so essentially, so that's why, as I mentioned, in order to build a platform for a responsible data economy, we also need to ensure that the computation on data itself doesn't leak uh, users' uh, sensitive information. And in this case, uh, utilizing technologies like differential privacy can help us to ensure that the computation result itself doesn't leak uh, sensitive information mm-hmm. about individual users. Okay. In the mm-hmm. example that you are describing, to what degree are you being fine-grained about what you consider sensitive information versus what isn't sensitive information? I'm thinking a little bit of, um, you know, it's middle of uh, middle of July, and you know, everyone's talking about GPT three and you know, there's a very coarse grain argument that says that, you know, what GPT-3 is doing is kind of remembering, you know, all of the text on the Internet and kind of regurgitating it in creative ways based on the, the prompt. And so, you know, from that perspective, all it's doing is leaking information, but in a constructive way. And I'm trying to draw a parallel between that and the, the data leaking that we're talking about in, in this case. Right. Yeah, that's a very good question. And exactly, even in the work that we did studying the privacy challenges of uh, language models, mm-hmm. uh, one of the main issues here, uh, when the vanilla language model leaks sensitive information about users' data, it is memorization, it is remembering, 
and those credit card numbers and social security numbers that were infected in the original training data set. So in this case, what we want is when you train a language model, you want the language model to really learn uh, essentially how to predict, for example, the next words, uh, the uh, next character mm -hmm. and so on for uh, essentially for the things that, uh, right, essentially in this probabilistic way, uh, but now actually remembering all these individual social security numbers and credit card numbers and, and so on. So essentially, it is how to address this memorization issue. And in our work, uh, we actually showed the studies and that uh, these language models, they do remember uh, these rare occurrences for social security numbers and credit card numbers in this particular case. And also we proposed the measures uh, called the exposure to actually measure the like the degree of the memorization that the language model has essentially has occurred in the language model and for GPT three so we actually we have uh, for the extensions of our work uh, that is studying uh, these type of models and like you said uh, these really really large models um, they can actually remember a lot yeah. and uh, and oftentimes these really large models. They are changed just on um, you know public data, but when you actually have private data, it can really uh, right, potentially could remember a lot about sensitive information, and that's these are the kind of issues that we really need to pay attention to because otherwise, this private data they can contain both individual user sensitive information and also when you're trained to over business data, also contains a lot of proprietary information as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the issue that I was trying to form a question around is, you know, it seems to me a lot easier to figure out how to get a model to not remember or or not leak or not even learn from social security uh, numbers because those are, you know, very fixed in nature. They've got a fixed format. It's easy to identify them in the training data. It's potentially easy to, to teach the model not to, to remember them in some way. Um, but if you've got a language model and you're trying to maybe fine tune it on a, on a private uh, data set, there's potentially uh, a ton of sensitive information, you know, say about the inner workings of a business or, you know, past, you know, deals or contracts or things like this that it I can, I'm envisioning a lot of scenarios where it's hard to separate the information that you want the model to learn from and the information that you want. The, the model to not leak? Mm -hmm. Right, that's a very good question. So when I talked about the solution of uh, learning a differentially private uh, language model, so in this case, the solution is not just particular for, uh, for example, credit card numbers or social security numbers. It's okay. in, right, it's general. Uh, you don't pre-specify uh, the type of sensitive information that you need to protect. Uh, differential privacy is a very general notion of privacy. Uh, it, it, it's not specific to a particular type uh, of mm -hmm. sensitive information. So the idea there is essentially, uh, so when we say, for example, an algorithm is differentially private, uh, it follows the following high-level definition, is essentially if you consider you have two, we call the neighboring data sets, where one data set has one more data point mm -hmm. uh, than the other, for example, one data point about them that's not in the other uh, data set. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we compute an algorithm over these two neighboring data sets. Uh, the algorithm is uh, randomized. And in this case, we say that the algorithm is differentially private if the computation results of this algorithm over these two neighboring data sets is uh, very close essentially the probability distribution of the computation results from this algorithm over these two uh, neighboring data sets is probabilistically very close, then what this says is essentially from the computation results, the attacker wouldn't be able to tell whether Sam's data point has been used in the computation mm -hmm. or not. And this is a way to essentially talk about showing that the computation result has not really leaked much information about, for example, SAM's data. So, so similarly, when you carry over to the machine learning model, it's similar. So essentially from the machine learning model, the attacker wouldn't be able to tell 
whether a particular, for example, uh, social security number has been used in the data set and hence then in this case you won't uh, right so 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 in this way uh, the training machine model can help enhance the uh, privacy protection for the uh, original training data set okay do you, do you draw a distinction between techniques like differential privacy that are pre- preventing information being leaked and techniques that are preventing the network from memorizing the information in the first place? I see. So in this particular case, uh, what the differential privacy does, for example, when you train the differential privacy uh, machine learning model, in this case, what you are doing is actually uh, trying to, it is actually reducing the memorization uh, that the network is doing. And in our work, we actually showed, as I mentioned that with our uh, measure uh, of uh, this exposure, which measures the degree of memorization, we actually show that when you train a differentially private uh, language model, in this case, actually, uh, you are reducing uh, this type of memorization. Mm-hmm. In the case of differential privacy, typically if you're in an application that involves uh, differential privacy, you're limited to doing computation or analysis on on an aggregate level. Does that mean that, you know, the kinds of applications you'll be able to support in a, this kind of, in a responsible data platform or scenario or only these kinds of aggregate uh, types of computations? And that's a very good question. So I I think it can support different types of computation. So for example, if users data is only, uh, used uh, to, like the computing results is only uh, used for users' own consumption, then you can essentially do arbitrary computation on users' data and then just review the computation results to the user itself. Um, but when you want to compute over multiple users' data and then release the results, the, the computation results, then in this case, oftentimes you are already computing some kind of aggregate sense or you are training uh, machining models over uh, different users' data. And then in this case, yes, so you actually, you really do need techniques like differential privacy and so on to ensure that. So when you are computing over different users' data, then the computing results doesn't leak sensitive information about mm-hmm. individual users. Mm-hmm. You mentioned homomorphic encryption. Can you talk a little bit about where that comes into play? Uh, I've not spent a lot of time looking at it, but uh, I understand that in that case, the set of operations that you can apply that can retain this homomorphic property is somewhat limited. Does that is that a big barrier? So homomorphic encryption is one type of cryptographic techniques to enable you to essentially do computing over encrypted data. And mm-hmm. uh, it's one type of uh, solutions to the problem that I mentioned, this secure computing. So the goal of the secure computing is the following. We oftentimes talk about this uh, simulation of ideal worlds with a trusted third party. So with the secure computing, uh, the goal is that, let's say we have a, a trusted third party in this ideal world. And what you do is that you give data to this trusted third party, and also you give an algorithm in this case to the trusted third party. And the trusted third party will compute this algorithm are a function, let's say a function f over your input x, then there's the computing result f of x. So in this case, only f of x will be revealed, nothing else. So this is what happens in the ideal world with this trusted third party. So you trust that this trusted third party will not leak any sensitive information about uh, your data. Only the computing, the computation result f of x is revealed. Uh, but of course, then how do you find this trusted third party? Uh, in the past, essentially, essentially people rely on trust of a particular party uh, based on you know business contracts uh, and so on. But of course, that's uh, that's suboptimal. So even in the best case, uh, the trusted party tries to comply to the contract. Their own system may be compromised and and so on. Right? So essentially, the question is how we can have uh, technical solutions, ideally even with the provable guarantees to ensure this, uh, this ideal world essentially be able to simulate this trusted third party. And in order to do that, essentially, 
the community has uh, been developing different types of solutions. Uh, this uh, homomorphic encryption is one type of solutions uh, utilizing cryptography, uh, where you essentially you encrypt the inputs and then you compute over the inputs and then you generate this uh, encrypted um, computing results so that only the original user is able to decrypt. And so then they only they learn the, the computing uh, results. And another way, as I mentioned, is that you can use secure hardware where uh, based on uh, certain like hardware and software combined solutions, you simulate this black box environment. We call it it's a secure execution environment uh, and also called a secure enclave, where again, you put data into a black box and also you put uh, the function of the program uh, into this black box. And the, uh, the hardware and software combined solution ensures that when the program is executing inside this black box, nothing else, nothing outside this black box, including the operating system or other applications will be able to see what's running inside or will be able to modify what's running inside. And hence this black box ensures the confidentiality and integrity of the computation. And this secure enclave also provides a capability called remote attestation so that a remote verifier is able to remotely verify uh, the right computation has happened uh, on a particular uh, piece of data. So essentially it can verify the initial state of the secure enclave and the program that will be run in the secure enclave. So with this method, essentially it's another way, another practical way to simulate this trusted third party to, to ensure that when the program computes over the data, nothing else uh, gets, uh, gets leaked. And there has been various commercial solutions, uh, including uh, you know, Intel SGX and AMD, uh, right? different hardware manufacturers have all built their uh, you know, different uh, types of solutions for this. Uh, but however, all these solutions are closed sourced and there has been you know, security, some of the some security issues uh, discovered, uh, even though they have been patched and so on. Uh, but uh, being a closed source, it's difficult for us to, for the community to really know what type of security guarantees that this type of solution can provide. Uh, so uh, as a research project at Berkeley, uh, in my research group and with other colleagues and so on, we have been building uh, what's called the Keystone, uh, secure enclave. Uh, it's an open source secure enclave. Uh, essentially provides an open source uh, version of this black box uh, that helps you to do this type of uh, secure computing. So, uh, and it's built on top of RISC V, uh, open source RISC architecture. And we have uh, demonstrated that you can actually you know, build uh, you, uh, like machine learning models inside uh, this secure enclave that you can do inference and, uh, and, and other types of computation. It can be really efficient uh, and so on. So in the future, uh, also, I think uh, there has been discussions even like GPUs and, uh, and TPUs in the future, uh, there can be uh, you know, this notion of a secure enclave so that the data is encrypted going into the chip and only is uh, decrypted uh, inside the chip, and then you compute over the data essentially in this black box manner. Hmm. When you talk about um, the the risk architecture, is this something that you're able to build with off the shelf components, or does it require custom hardware to implement? So right, so like with Risk Five, there are chips already off the shelf uh, to enable you to do that, and uh, right, our system actually runs on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool, cool. You also are, are active in exploring different adversarial uh, attacks on uh, machine learning and that whole space of, of adversarial machine learning uh, in general. Can you talk a little bit about some of your work in that area? <laughs> right, uh, yes. Uh, well, you know, as we try to deploy uh, machine learning uh, AI systems in the real world, one issue we've already discussed is you know, the privacy and responsible data use to ensure that the model actually doesn't leak sensitive information about users and also is used in a way that's for users' best interests. Uh, 
And then another important issue is to ensure that these models are actually not uh, easily hacked by attackers. Uh, so that relates to the problem of adversarial machine learning, where in adversarial machine learning, uh, so one example you know, we have studies is essentially looking at how the attackers can actually feed, for example, uh, modified uh, inputs, like with adversary perturbations that can fool attackers mm -hmm. to give the wrong, uh, to, to fool the machine learning system yeah. to give the wrong answers, for example, the wrong predictions. And one example that we have studied is uh, in the uh, self-driving car uh, setting, uh, we're looking at also whether some of these adversarial example attacks can even happen in the real world. It's like putting uh, a sticker on a stop sign and... Right, 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 exactly. Right, demonstrating that uh, these type of attacks can even happen in the real world where the attackers, mm -hmm. by putting just stickers on stop signs, it can, for humans, we can still recognize these stop signs with no problems. Mm -hmm. um, but for the image classification systems, or these computer vision systems, they can be very easily fooled to give wrong answers and also to give the target answers that the attacker wants. And the important part is that this can, this type of attack can even remain effective as uh, even from different viewing distances, different viewing angles, uh, and mm -hmm. so on. Right, so with my collaborators, we have demonstrated that this is, uh, is feasible and we developed these real world stop signs or traffic signs and so on. And uh, some of these artifacts actually uh, have been on um, exhibits at the Science Museum in, in London. Uh, so it's actually yeah, quite, uh, uh, quite fun. Oh, well, to what degree are, are you, you know, seeing or hearing about kind of real world examples of these types of adversarial attacks? Is, are, are we there yet? Is it, you know, something that, you know, people are, are practically faced with and, and worried about today? That's a very good question. I think um, uh, definitely we have seen, you know, attackers try to fool uh, machine learning systems. Mm -hmm. So in particular, for example, there, you know, there are a lot of these cloud uh, APIs yeah. uh, for different machine learning services. Uh, for example, uh, these cloud APIs may try to identify whether uh, certain content is deemed safe, for example, and it's actually very easy for attackers to write through this type of attacks to try to fool uh, this type of cloud APIs. In our mm -hmm. own work, we have demonstrated this as well, and we call this actually black box attacks. So in this case, we don't even need to know the details of the machine learning model uh, of the cloud API, including the architecture or the parameters of these machine learning models, uh, but through uh, black box attacks, uh, either from uh, what, uh, what's called transferability attacks, where we can uh, build a local model and then try to uh, generate these adversarial uh, examples by just attacking the local model. And then, and then due to this transferability phenomena, the generated adversarial examples uh, from the local model actually has higher likelihoods to actually be successful against the remote victim model as well. And then we demonstrated that this type of attacks can be effective for these cloud APIs. And a recent work that we also did- On that path, uh, on the, the work that you were just mentioning is the our ability to generate these effective local models, incorporating some of the kind of parameter and architecture leakage that we've talked about previously? Uh, so in this case, yeah, we assume that we actually don't really know anything about the remote model, like what architecture, mm -hmm. what parameters it actually, you know, use, uh, it actually uses. So we just built a separate local model. And because of this transferability, the attacks that we found, um, this local model has high likelihood to actually uh, succeed on the remote model. And also, so in the past we've done work and also the community has done work uh, studying uh, in, the, in the computer vision fields for this type of attack. And recently, we've also studied uh, in the natural language space. So in this particular case for machine translation. Uh, so we actually looked at, uh, for example, Google Translate and uh, 
a few other these cloud APIs for machine translation. Mm-hmm. So first, we show that by just querying this uh, cloud APIs for machine translation, you can call it an imitation attack or model stealing attack. We can actually build a local model uh, that has very high uh, essentially performance that close to these cloud APIs when you evaluate it over standard benchmark. So, so by creating these cloud APIs, we are able to build these imitation models locally. And then by developing attacks, uh, these adversarial attacks on this local imitation model, mm-hmm. uh, we are able to generate these adversarial examples. As a simple example, we show that uh, if we try to translate, for example, from English to German, uh, the English sentence says, let's say today is the temperature is six Fahrenheit. In this case, the, the language model uh, generates the correct translation, but we are able to show that uh, like by finding, essentially we were able to find the attack. Uh, in this case, right, if we just change six Fahrenheit to seven Fahrenheit, just changing the number. Uh-huh. Uh, and otherwise it's the same sentence. And then when we give the sentence uh, to the language model, it actually translates into uh, the temperature is 21 Celsius, for example. So it uh, uh, gives the wrong translation. And mm. in this case, we only change the uh, one character in the original sentence and show that uh, the re- resulting translation is very different. And this is just one of many examples we showed how using different uh, essentially uh, loss functions using different uh, methods, we can generate different types of attacks to try to fool the translation model. Mm-hmm. And also when we uh, transfer this attack to the remote model, for example, to Google Translate and to other type, uh, types of uh, and other cloud APIs, uh, we show that the, these attacks can still work. Uh, so, so, yeah, so these, going back to so these are other examples demonstrating that when we deploy uh, machine learning systems in the real world, it's really important to think about these type of issues as well. And we call them integrity attacks, essentially trying to see how, you know, attackers may fool uh, the machine learning systems to try to give, have the machining systems to give the wrong answers. And as we know in the future, and more and more, critical decisions will be made by these uh, learning systems uh, autonomously, almost, uh, right, potentially like every minute, we really need to be uh, very, very careful about ensuring that uh, these machining systems cannot be easily attacked. They do give the rights, uh, you know, as they have high you know, security assurance and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you also have done some interesting work on the topic of program synthesis. So uh, trying to use machine learning models to generate computer programs. Can you talk a little bit about your work in that area? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think program. the reason I'm working in program synthesis is because I think program synthesis is, uh, is the ideal playground uh, for trying to build, uh, we call, you know, what we call AGI-like artificial general yeah. intelligence. I think it's really the ultimate task. Talking about building intelligent machines, ideally you want this intelligent machine to actually be able to ideally program, and mm-hmm. hence it's actually able to, in the future maybe, right, even build itself and, and so on, to help uh, right, building programs to solve many real-world problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I joke with my colleagues in robotics is that uh, program synthesis is like doing robotics but without the physics uh, constraints of nature uh, without having to you know obey the laws of physics so in program synthesis essentially you need to solve many of the similar problems you need to understand goals you need to be able to decompose problems uh, into subproblems, you need to be able to do very effective search. The search space of uh, of programs is is huge, uh, as we all know. Uh, you know, comparing to playing Go or playing mm-hmm. you know StarCraft and so on, the the search space of programs is uh, even is even larger, even for small simple programs and so on. 
Um, so, so you, you, and you need to do planning and, and also you need to better understand semantics to know what you want the programs to do and so on. So essentially all the problems that you need to solve in robotics and also just in general building <laughs> intelligent machines, they are all based in program synthesis, you need to, to really solve program synthesis. You, all, you really need to solve all these problems. So okay. it's a really exciting uh, domain, but also at the same time, it's a domain that you can experiment much more easily. You don't need to build robots. You don't, uh, right? And what you need to do, like what we did, is oftentimes you just build these synthetic, you can build synthetic environments. You can easily also build uh, these uh, program, you know, uh, analytics or even just execute the programs to know exactly what it does and so on. So from in terms of evaluation, doing experiments, it's uh, much, much easier. So in the program synthesis space, uh, in, in particular program synthesis via learning, it's still a nascent uh, field. Uh, I remember, you know, a few years ago when we started working in it, there were very few people actually working in the space. And, then, mm -hmm. and when you look at uh, New Rips, you know, iClear, uh, ICML, these conferences, there were very few papers on actually doing program synthesis via learning. Mm -hmm. um, but when you look at the most recent, for example, New Rips, New Rips conference and so on, and, uh, and iClear uh, conference, you actually see now there are specific sessions even dedicated to yeah. a program synthesis via learning. Uh, I think it is, uh, it's a great progress for the, uh, for the community, but still, uh, we are at a very early stage. The mm -hmm. programs that, in general, the community uh, can synthesize is still very, very small. And in general, uh, typically we focus on doing program synthesis for certain vertical domains. Easier to make progress uh, that way. Uh, and I think also program synthesis can have, already can have a huge impact uh, in the real world. So for example, some of the tasks that we have done and like translating natural language into simple programs. And so these include translating natural language into if this, then that type of programs. Uh, for example, you know, if it rains tomorrow, send me a text message or translating natural language description into SQL queries. So this can uh, enable more people who cannot code to be able to utilize data. So for example, with a huge database, people who cannot code, who cannot write SQL queries, they may have a lot of questions that they want to get answers from these large database. And when we enable this natural language uh, description, get translators into SQL queries directly, we can really enable more people to benefit from data, you know, talking about uh, responsible data, responsible data economy, and so on. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I think it's, uh, right, it's a really exciting uh, domain and deep learning has really been um, hugely helpful uh, in the space. It's uh, when we first started working in the space. What was your uh, first uh, your first paper in program synthesis? So our first paper in program synthesis via learning is actually using deep learning to enable uh, natural language description to be translated in this uh, this standard called FTTT programs. Okay. And at the time, also, there has been some other uh, approaches using more traditional natural language uh, approaches, like semantic parsing and so on, to try to address a problem. And we were the first one to actually demonstrate that using deep learning, you can actually get uh, much better results than we were able to get state-of-the-art results using deep mm -hmm. learning uh, and so on. And then since then, we have explored, as I mentioned, uh, translating natural language description into SQL queries and also building even like pro language translator, translating programs written in one programming language into another uh, and uh, many other uh, application domains and so on. And also trying to develop methods that essentially make uh, the, uh, the learning process more sophisticated to be able to leverage more about the execution semantics and also better uh, learning from its past mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so many interesting techniques in the space. I think uh, the field overall has really flourished uh, over the last uh, few years. I imagine you've seen this uh, demo, again, referencing back to GPT-3 
Uh, there's one demo that's kind of going, making the rounds of someone who built a, a web layout generator that uh, spits out JSX code, and you can tell it, you know, make me a web page with a red button, a green button, and a blue button, and it creates the code to to do that. Have you seen that one? Uh, I mean, not the particular, but I've seen like similar like applications. Yeah. And yeah. in the past, right? So, so actually, we also tried to, to do some of uh, that, this type of applications as well. I think, uh, uh, yes. Do, do you in think general. That these gigantic language models will play a, a huge role in the field of program synthesis, or do you think it's going to be, you know, maybe more constrained techniques that uh, allow us to make big progress there? Uh, that's a very good question. I think in general, for program synthesis to really work, we need uh, you know, different components, different types of techniques and so on. So certainly for this type of language models, we know like uh, certain you know, network architectures like a transformer and so on, they just have been so powerful. They can solve so many different types of problems mm-hmm. uh, in so many different types of applications and so on. So I think certain types of network architectures and uh, certain components are definitely very, uh, uh, very, very helpful. Um, but on the other hand, I think with program synthesis, that's also another reason that I really like the, the domain is that for solving problems in this area, you also really need to understand semantics in a much deeper level mm-hmm. uh, to, right, to know what uh, you want the program to do and hence what type of programs you should generate. I don't think just having a transformer itself you know, can help us yeah. solve program synthesis, but definitely I think it's an important component. And uh, that's also why it's a really exciting field we need to uh, further explore and develop other types of um, techniques and approaches. Uh, as I mentioned, trying to, trying to learn more uh, about uh, the semantics and also trying to you know, learn from past mistakes and also trying to understand uh, if the program that you generated is not the right one, you try to identify uh, the type of issues that it's uh, why it's not working and then try to learn how to fix this very much like how humans program how, how we can you know correct and uh, write better programs and so on so we hope that uh, the tools for program synthesis can uh, leverage many of these uh, types of capabilities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you've also done a bit of work on contact tracing as it applies to uh, coronavirus and, and COVID-19. Can you share a little bit about what you've done in that area? Mm-hmm. And that's uh, another uh, a concrete example of what we call responsible data use. So in particular... focused on the privacy side there? Right, right, right. Exactly. Okay. As we know, um, with this pandemic, it's, uh, it's changed the world. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, n- nobody has, I think, really really expected that it can change the world so fast mm-hmm. and at such uh, a global scale uh, and so on. And, uh, and hence, of course, finding solutions to fight the pandemic is really important. And of course, data is you know, the key driver in fighting the pandemic. Then the question is, as we use data to fight the pandemic, you know, how we also at the time, same time need to ensure that the data is being used in a privacy-preserving way and used in a responsible way, uh, because otherwise you can really you know, have huge compromise of individuals' privacy, which is uh, really uh, sensitive for individuals and so on. And also if users are concerned about their privacy, uh, this will also limit their participation in whatever you know, apps that you try to have users to use or in whatever systems that you are trying to deploy. And hence, as, as a concrete example and application of this approach of building a platform for a responsible data economy, we are investigating how we can uh, utilize data uh, in a more responsible way and uh, at the same time to enable, for example, uh, fast and uh, effective contact tracing. Uh, so we have been uh, exploring uh, different uh, approaches and developing different techniques, including um, improvements on cryptographic protocols for more uh, privacy-preserving contact tracing, and that's extension to the Google Apple exposure notification protocol to provide more privacy protection, as well as uh, enabling what we call a secure distributed uh, computing fabric 
uh, to enable uh, this type of contact tracing work to be done over different data sources, but not in a centralized manner, in a more distributed and, and decentralized manner. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I wanted to mention that, uh, of course, you know, this is really important and timely topic. We are actually launching uh, a summit uh, on July 28th and 30th um, called the Responsible Data Summit. And uh, we dedicate one day just on responsible data in the time of pandemic to uh, discuss the various issues about how we can uh, use data in a more responsible way while providing effective solutions for fighting pandemic. And also another day on talking about the cutting edge uh, technologies and also the latest thinking in legal frameworks for responsible data technology and policy uh, in the real world. And I think that they can provide more uh, exciting uh, details for uh, for people who are interested uh, on responsibledata.ai. Right, right. And will the, uh, I believe this will be published after that conference, but will the videos be available for folks to check out? Yes, yeah, the videos will be online. Um, and we have a great line of speakers, including uh, Yusha Benjo. Actually, we will talk about how he uses um data and uh, to fight a pandemic uh, in contact tracing and in a privacy preserving a responsible way as well, as well as many other great speakers. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Don, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us a bit about what you're up to. Great. Thanks all for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.